We're in the prophecy of Revelation. We're down chapter 1 to verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The seven stars he mentioned in verse 16, and the seven lampstands mentioned in verse 12, he basically tells us what they are, so it's no longer a mystery. A mystery was some truth, some hidden truth that had not been revealed and that was going to be revealed. Once it's revealed, it's no longer hidden or a mystery. The seven stars are angels of the seven churches. Some say overseers, pastors, and bishops, but most likely, from what I can perceive, they are literally seven of the Lord's angels, the angels of Christ. We look at the book of Daniel, we'll see a good comparison. There were various demon powers that had sway over various nations, and God's angels at war with them at times, or allowed them to proceed or not to proceed. And Michael at this time, he was called the chief prince, or one of the chief princes, the archangel. He was the guardian, the watcher over Israel. So angels have something to do with the political affairs of the world and with things that go on in the religious systems and various things. These are what we do not perceive nor understand. This spiritual conflict is like a chessboard and the pawns are the humans. And we can perceive much of what goes on by providence and circumstances but the backboard where all the powers are, they are unseen. God does not explain to us his workings. That's why we have faith in him as we trust him and do his will. He sends his angels to do certain things, to move certain things. In providence, often what we call circumstances for the Christian can be providential. God can send an angel to move something, to get something done. We forget he uses angels, the Holy Spirit, the same as he uses Christians. He indwells the Christian. They are under a different system and a higher order, basically, but he still uses them. They have service to the Lord. And we'll find that this does not cease in either testament. So I believe these are literal angels and not pastors. The other reason I see this is they're more guardians. They have power and instruction from Christ to watch and carry out his purposes as to the order in the churches. They can maintain order or correct. They can chastise or they can help. So they do something when the body of Christ gathers together. So the angel is addressed as being the spiritual side of the church, what maintains the lampstand and various spiritual things. But it's interesting, the message is basically, as we read at the end of each address to the seven churches, it says, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He's not addressing the angels directly. The angels are not corrected. The angels 
uh, are not in error. God's angels do God's will perfectly. But again, they are concerned with things that go on, and they have we call jobs or ministries that they answer to Christ for and watching the body of Christ. Remember, angels desire to look into these things, the things which go on in the body of Christ that affect the world in various situations. The angels restrain demonic princes. When there's war going on, certain nations override other nations, and the demon princes, they fight for supremacy and position. But the Christ, the Lord Almighty, has the overall say-so. He puts down one and puts up another. He restrains them. He allows them to do various things to punish each other, to punish the nations and the people. But he sets the limits to what they can do and restrains them. But they do influence governmental and political and religious systems of the world And Satan is called the god of this world. He is the ruler. He has various powers he can use until restrained by the Lord himself or by the name and the power of the Christian to come against him under various situations. Okay? So we'll say then he addresses the whole message to the spiritual being But the words themselves are addressed to the body of Christ. He will speak to them, direct messages, tell them the rewards they'll get if they overcome. The angels that are doing this have already overcome. They were of the two-thirds that did not fall with Lucifer when they were cast out of heaven. So they are in a state of perfection. They always behold the full glory the face of God, he says they always see his face, his full glory, wherever they're at, and they are ministering spirits. They serve the Lord in whatever capacity in heaven or earth that they're given duties to do. So the Holy Spirit speaks to the churches these direct messages. The angels do the parts which we're not told exactly how, when, and why they do this. Yet some get insight into angels uh, watching and having somewhat to do with the Christian worship. People don't understand, but there's a few glimpses sometimes. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 10, verse 9-2, The man was created for the woman, but the woman was for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. So when the church gathers together, Paul basically did not permit nor teach that women could have authority over men in the gathering of the assemblies or the churches. When many of the smaller groups would get together, there would be various more powerful manifestations of prophecy and the word of God and He did not permit, and he taught that women in that capacity were not allowed to do this, that they were to have their heads covered, either their long hair or a veil, to show people, but it appears angels also, that they were in submission to their husbands, to the male superior, their fathers, if they were not married, to the shepherds 
of the church that they were under authority. They were not going to usurp or come against this in any way. And it says, for the angels, okay? Angels then have something to do with the ministries of the Spirit in the church. The ministry of the gifts of the Spirit implies that angels have something to do with this. They may administer the gifts, give them to the Christian at the time he's manifesting it. The Holy Spirit may move through him to communicate these things. See, we're not told. We know the Spirit communes with the Christian spirit, but when it comes to things that go on in the world, often God uses angels. The Holy Spirit does not work directly often. See, again, he has his servants for these things. The Lord does nothing on the earth, as the scripture said, that he doesn't tell his prophets about it. The Lord does nothing in the kingdom of God, but through the body of Christ and the head. He does not move outside of this. What he does with the nations and stuff is separate from that. But anything that has to do with the kingdom of God on earth, the Christian is involved, and the Christian must submit his will to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit does not override him in this matter. So we see then that the angels, like the body of Christ, are used by the Holy Spirit for the various things he wants to accomplish. So they have insight. They're watching. They are interested in what goes on and how the Spirit moves within the body of Christ. So the angels are present, and they expect things to be done orderly as to respect Christ. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 9. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. So again, we see they have something to do. Paul was aware then that what happened to him, the various warfares and conflicts, the sufferings, that angels were watching this. They had something to do with it. I believe that if Paul had a snake in the flesh, I believe it was a demonic spirit that buffeted him and increased persecutions and trouble for him to keep him in a humble state. But at the same time, the angel Lord would have to constrain him, the spirit, and not allow him to do but certain things. See, he would have the overall control. But it was the Lord's will to humble and keep Paul from becoming arrogant and proud. His natural nature had a tendency toward pharisaical pride. He was accomplished. He was wise and intellectual. He was highly thought of before his conversion by the high priest of the Sanhedrin. And he could get too elevated. And that's why the Lord said he sent him a buffeting spirit. It would keep him occupied, this suffering and intense affliction, that he wouldn't have time to glory in his pride of life. That he wouldn't have time to think about how wonderful he was from the natural. See, God did not want this. It would not serve his purpose. And he could not actually use Paul without doing this 
to him. So we probably see here not only the work of a demonic spirit, but we see the angels of the Lord observing and watching and interfering where necessary, constraining the spirit from not going beyond what they've been permissioned to do. The same happened, remember, with Job. When the Lord gave the devil permission to sift Job and bring all of these horrible things on him, he set the limit each time. At one time, he says, you can do what you want, but you cannot kill him. Each time, he would set the limit to what the devil could do and what he could not do. So I believe the angels carry out the same purposes in the body of Christ. So we have one scripture alone that tells us that angels are near, they're watching, and they're helping at times true Christians. Hebrews chapter 1, 13 and 14. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Set at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? He was addressing Christ here by prophecy, the Son of God whom we saw as Jesus. That's who the prophecy is addressed to. Said it was not spoken to angels, his elevated state. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? So all of the angels that have to do with Christians here on earth, they have a service. They are watching, observing, and I believe the same hierarchy of angels that were appointed over the seven churches do the same for that church area. They're sort of a higher angel that is in control over a vaster area where it implies that true Christians have angels at times that minister to us. We're not told if we have, like some people think, a permanent guardian angel. We cannot prove this. But obviously, in our Christian walk, they come and go. There may be different ones. They help at various times. They move things in the earth, circumstances, providential things they do to accomplish God's purpose as the Christian is led of the Spirit. So their ministry is serving and helping, sent to minister for those who will inherit Salvation, we can say final salvation. See, it's because he's speaking of the future here. The true Christian has eternal life as he or she abides and continues in Christ, bearing fruit, obeying and being led of the Spirit. Yet final salvation, heavenly salvation, is only a present hope. I have to bring this out a lot to refute the once saved, always saved heresies, as if Everything's been done, and now you're okay. These are doctrines of demons. Romans chapter 8, verse 24 and 25. For we are saved in this hope, referring to being saved here on earth, the Spirit as the down payment, the first fruits. We have him indwelling us, but our body and complete being has not been finally salvage. The mortal has not put on immortality. As long as we're under this probation, uh, we can fall away. We can despise the grace of God. We can yield to the world, the flesh, or the devil and forfeit what God has given us, and then the Father will cut us off from the vine. We'll be cut off 
from grace. Okay? So we are saved in this hope of the final salvation. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? So we're seeing then that Paul believed there was a final resurrection and it's not guaranteed until we finish our race. Okay? So he says, but if we hope for what we do not see, final salvation, what he's talking about, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. See? It's the perseverance of the Christian that guarantees he'll make it. It's not the irresistible perseverance of the Holy Spirit in the Christian as the heretic teaches, as if God is going to overwhelm and override them and drag them into the kingdom no matter what they do. This is not what is taught. God graces and strengthens that the Christian can persevere, endure. These words be steadfast. They mean to come against the opposition of the world, the flesh, the devil that comes against them, and not to give way. As Paul would say when he's speaking of the armor of Christ, having done all, stand. When you've been fighting and warfare and the devil's thrown everything at you, at the end, when the dust settles, you're standing. Those who don't are in for trouble. They're defeated and they can fall away if they persist and not becoming and maintaining a overcoming life. The Christian that walks in the Lord has overcome in the present tense, but there's no guarantee of the future. He has to, as we will see with the seven churches, the Lord will address each one when he's finished and promise rewards to him that overcomes. That alone tells us he did not accept that they'd already overcome that it was final, and they didn't have to worry about nothing. But he talked to those, telling them to keep persevering and to hold on to what they had, and God would give them a final reward, which was what? They would be made a pillar in the temple of God in heaven, those who endured to the end, those who overcame on earth, and then they would be fixed in that situation as the righteous angels are. The ones that did not fall with Lucifer, they passed the test. They never have to be tested again. They cannot be tested with sin or evil. They have no corrupt nature. That's the reward of staying loyal. And the same thing will be done for the Christian. Once he puts on immortality, once he's assigned his position in heaven, uh, his spiritual state is he'll always be there. He'll never have the possibility of losing it. He cannot exercise his will to sin against God for one reason alone. When he puts on immortality, he will be as God in holiness. That's what God promises him. He will have no lower nature to tempt him. He will have no devil. And he will have seen the whole picture of the conflict between good and evil. We could say his common sense says, why would he want to disobey. There'd be no purpose in it. So see, that's the reward of those who finally overcome and endure and persevere. Jesus said, in your perseverance, in your endurance, you keep your souls. That was from Jesus. Jesus said, he that endures to the end will be saved. 
The opposite is true. If you do not overcome and endure, you will not be saved. People need to emphasize the consequences in this lying, demonic age of false Christians and false prophets and teachers who lie to the people. We're in a darker time. There should be more done to refute, rebuke, and correct falseness and expose it. And people don't like that, and therefore they're easily deceived. So the seven lampstands, he said, are the seven churches. Remember, we want to say each of these areas, it was not a building they went to. When he's speaking of the church of Ephesus, he don't mean they all gathered together in one place. There were no churches, buildings as we know it. They met in people's homes and other situations, and they gathered from all over the area. So there were many uh, what we would call home groups. And then at times when the apostles or those with higher prophetic gifts and teachers came into the area to teach, then they would gather together that the whole body could receive the grace and spirit of God ministering to them in a more powerful way. It appears that in these situations, the women were not permitted to be exercised in the office of a prophet. Yet it appears Paul did apply there was a place because he said a woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, he implies it was done then. I tend to believe it was in the smaller groups, the home groups, but still the woman had to be submissive to the male authority. She did not exercise the office of the fivefold ministry. All Christians at various times when the Spirit's moving, can prophesy. They can exercise the word of wisdom or knowledge. But that does not mean they have that office and ministry of authority to the whole body, where those in fivefold ministry do. They have authority over all other ministries, and all other ministries are subordinate to them. Okay, These would be the elders and the overseers of these local gatherings. So we see the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Each is told, as we get further into it, to hear what the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, says to the churches, not the angels, okay? The deeds, the works, the actions that they do, what we will see and hear, either getting praise or reproof. Angels get neither as far as the body of Christ is concerned. They answer to the Lord in a different way, but they are not involved personally with the actions that the apostle here is revealing to us that the Spirit is telling them to do certain things. The angels themselves do not. So we see seven is used so many times, especially in the book of Revelation. It's a symbol of completeness and perfection. Here, the seven churches, the seven, it refers to basically the universal church. When we say the universal, the word was often used Catholic, but it didn't mean the Roman Catholic church. It means the one, the universal. There is only one body of Christ. All true Christians are part of the universal church. All true Christians are not a part of the Roman Catholic Church. Very few of them 
and they would be ignorant babes are true Christians, okay? I do not believe, according to Scripture, you could be a pope or a cardinal, a bishop or a priest and be a real Christian because they're into heresy, they're a cult, they're mixed with everything else, and they're an abomination to apostolic teaching. As not to forget, most denominational Protestants, you can throw in the same bag, okay? So we see then that we want to make it understood that it's the people, the individual Christians and the corporate church that Christ is speaking to. We have to remember as the epistles were written, every word did not apply to the same individual. Paul reproved the rich Corinthians. He commended others. So he's speaking to the whole group, and sometimes he's addressing a particular group. And we'll find in the churches, he does this. Out of the seven churches, we will find two churches he does not have no reproof for. And two churches he finds no good in. He actually considers them dead, Sardis and Laodicea. He's about ready to remove the total lampstand. And we will see in the last church, Laodicea, to prove it, he's standing outside the church. He is not moving in the midst of the lampstand. See, he's right at the verge of cutting that whole church system off. Oh, there'll always be individuals that'll be faithful to the Lord, the same as in the Old Covenant. There were always individuals. A remnant of the old was always saved. But to function as a true spiritual church with Christ as the head and the Holy Spirit leading, certain conditions have to be met. And Sardis and Laodicea has basically failed at this, and the Lord was ready to make them a non-church. So he has given them opportunity to repent, and we'll see this as we get more into the actions of each church. So it's the universal church. People forget sometimes that the Apostle Paul wrote, he wrote to churches, and isn't it interesting? He wrote to seven churches, the same as John did. Isn't this interesting? In his epistles, they were told as he sent them to be read to the other churches. So see, it shows he wanted it and expected it to be given to the whole body of Christ, even though it was directed at individual churches in various areas. And remember, it was Apostle Peter who called Paul's epistles and writings scripture. Isn't it interesting? He was in a conflict with Paul. Paul wrote more scripture than any of them. And he called them scripture. And he said that men and heretics would twist Paul's epistles and teachings. And the root word meant to torture, to twist it where it's no longer the truth. And he said to their own condemnation. So he warned them not to tamper. Oh, they've been doing it for centuries. And much of this ultra, I don't even consider the Catholic Church in this, because I don't believe it's Christian. Never was. I believe many of the Protestants have taken up Calvinism and many of the false teachings there, licensed to sin and grace, and you can serve the Lord. He can be your Savior, but you don't have to serve him. You don't have to be a disciple. These are all demonic teachings, and most of them come from twisting Paul's writings. By faith alone, that is not in Scripture. See, it's twisting Paul's writings. See, a lot of these things, to make their false doctrine seem legitimate, but they are false, and they will answer 
the false teacher will not make it into the kingdom of God. It implies in Corinthians that there are novices and babes that proceed to teach because they've not acquired knowledge of the word. And Jesus says an interesting thing. He said those who don't teach his commandments properly will be considered least in the kingdom of heaven. So it means that they'll make it. As Paul said, some will make it as a fire. But we're not talking about hardened, continual false teachers that deceive people with doctrines that lead people to hell. We're talking about novices and babes that have no business teaching because they're not mature and they've not grown on the milk of the word, but they proceed to want to witness and they think they've got a special gift because they're not spiritual. So we have to make a distinction between those who are fixed in their heresies and delude people continually. They're the ones that will come under and are under the curse of God Almighty and his Christ, okay? So Paul's seven churches, he wrote to the Romans, the Corinthians, the Galatians, the Ephesians, the Thessalonians, Ephesus, and Philadelphia. So we find seven distinct churches. Isn't it interesting, as far as we know, only Ephesus was one repeated in the book of Revelation. So they were viable churches. They were the ones that Paul laid the foundation of Scripture through. And all Christians are to read these things. As the Lord tells us in the book and prophecy of Revelation, let it be read and heed it. Read it all and study it and do what is required. So we see, again, he's speaking to the universal church. These messages to each church were still to be read by the other churches because there's an overall pattern and picture the Lord wants to get across. Paul was more inclusive and involved in his epistles to the churches. He covers a lot. Seven churches, he only puts a few sentences to each one. So we can say that they have their place, they have their foundation, and the Lord was dealing at a different time for a different purpose. So we cannot negate either of the order of the seven churches. They are to be accepted as scripture and obeyed what's being said in them. So both Paul's letters and John's prophecies to the church, the true body of Christ, are to be read and studied by all Christians. The reason my most professing Christians are not Christians is because they do not read and study and put to practice what the apostolic letters to the churches and the prophecy of the book of Revelation has told them to do. As Paul said, study so you'll be a good workman rightly handling the word of God. People who don't rightly handle the word of God become heretics. They distort, they twist, as Peter said, to their own condemnation. They alter. What is heresy to add or take from the soundness of apostolic teaching? Apostolic teaching fulfills, supersedes even the Gospels. I've heard people tell me, why well, I only read what Jesus said. Then you're an error. You can never be a mature Christian. You may make it as a fire. You may be the least in the kingdom, but you have no business 
teaching what Christianity is, because Jesus himself said, it's more needful for you that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Spirit will not come. And when he comes, he will guide you into all truth. How is he going to do this? Through apostolic teaching. So he's saying it's better. But it's the Christ Spirit himself in the apostles and prophets and New Testament ministers that is bringing forth the word of God. It's the Holy Spirit of Christ formulating what we consider sound teaching, sound doctrine. When we say sound, people say, well, I'm just not interested in doctrine. Then you're going to hell. That's your end. Doctrine simply means teaching. I've heard people say, well, I don't like to use the word religion because you're a worldly, corrupt, false Christian. That's why you don't want to be associated with the do-gooders. No, I know people like that. They think they're secret Christians. Well, I don't want to display my religion. Well, then you're going to hell. So you've been lied to. We are candles whether we like it or not. Our life and lifestyle will be a reflection somewhere. And even if people don't see it, the Holy Spirit sees it. And he will evaluate our standing, our ministry, and how we answer to the Lord. So see, many people, they want to accommodate the world by compromising Christianity. Hell will be full of them. The lake of fire will be filled with millions of them. See? Because God doesn't allow people to do that. You stand for the Lord or you don't stand for the Lord. And if you stand for the Lord, as the apostle said and Christ said, the world will hate you. And if you live godly in Christ Jesus, you will suffer persecution. Did not say you might. It said you will. All of those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer conflict. And as the apostle said, and through much tribulation, much troubles and affliction is how we're going to make it to heaven. And if not, then the person's a false Christian. See, It's one thing. We can be alone at times. We can be intercessors. We are not to leave the world, but we're to be separate from the world. We don't have to socialize and shouldn't unless it's required by the government. See, they were permitted to do this. But we cannot compromise our stand, our principles. We cannot fellowship with the worldly because we're linking ourselves with the spirit of the devil if we do this. Well, that's the masses of professing Christianity. But God has not altered his word. Their end will be according to their works. Remember, all judgments will be according to people's deeds and works. It never once says according to what they believe. Because the hundreds and millions and more that say, Lord, Lord, and claim to be Christian, as we've said so many countless times, Jesus will renounce them and say, you are never mine. You are never a Christian. You are lawless and wicked, and you're accursed of my Father. That is his answer to many who profess to be Christians. So here he says, as we go on, he's saying that in his right hand, they saw that he controls the angels, the directions of the spirit realm. He controls and is the head of the seven churches. Two of them are in dispute. He may reject them as he's going to warn Laodicea. Terrible that he's outside knocking 
on the door. Oh, that means he's not walking among their midst. Something is definitely wrong here, and he's going to be clarified. So by his hand, he is the one. Jesus, the Son of God, remember, he's the first and the last. He was once dead. He's alive forevermore. He acts as high priest now. He is the very word of God, restored to the full glory with the Father. The position he had before the world and the universe was created. Let's go ahead and take a break here.